Hello, country bonas. I am so excited to be bringing you episode 30 of season 5 of the Radio Cachimbona podcast. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. This episode was a really amazing one because I interviewed poet and professor Cynthia Guardado about her new book of poetry, Cenizas. 2022 was a really big year for Salvadoran literature and poetry in particular. There was a bunch of amazing poetry collections and books that came out in the fall of 2022, and I was able to interview a lot of those folks. So I'm really excited about this interview, which is a part of that. Thank you to everybody that has continued to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Doing so is the easiest way to support the podcast. Another critical way of supporting the podcast is by becoming a Patreon member. If you go to patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona, the link of this is also in the show notes. Join for 3 5 or $10 a month and get early access to episodes like these and also exclusive access to the lit reviews, which are book club style chats with other women of color. I release the lit review picks ahead of time so folks can read along if they wish and sort of use it as an accountability mechanism. The lit reviews can honestly be enjoyed even if you don't read the text themselves. It's one of my favorite parts of doing the podcast. You can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I hope that you all enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thanks. Her poems have appeared in Poetry Magazine, U.S. Latinx Voices in Poetry, The Wandering Song, and she's also won the Concurso Binacional de Poesia Pulitzer Frost in 2017 in Mexico. And Cenizas was a finalist for the National Poetry Series in 2019. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for coming onto the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. This is exciting. <laughs> yes. So we're here to talk about Cenizas. It's a book of poems about how the Salvadoran Civil War continues to haunt you as family members who survived that time period are now passing away, but whose memories also invigorate you with strength. The text examines things that are often too painful to discuss. Alcoholism, intergenerational trauma, absent fathers, violent fathers, and at the same time, all adding humanity to a people whose trauma is often treated like a zoo exhibit. You described traveling to El Salvador even amidst the Civil War, and you did so without papers. What made your family take that risk? Uh, so the center poem in the book, a title Diaspora, which is a pretty epic poem. It's uh, 1,500 words and has 11 parts. Is actually the last poem I wrote for the book mm. because it was such a, just like even to think about, it's a story I always retell about going and document, like my father going undocumented to El Salvador. I was born here, so I was documented. Oh, okay. Uh, Thank you so, for clarifying that. 
Yeah. So I always tell that story, Mm -hmm. but I never like really sat down to try to like process it and write it. But essentially the way that poem begins is really a part of the story that's a reality for my father. Um, Mm -hmm. So my father was mostly raised by his great grandmother. I'm sorry, my great grandmother. Uh Um, So his grandmother who was in her like mid to late 80s already when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And he was driving through Koreatown in Los Angeles, listening to the radio. And there was a popular like Latinx broadcaster on the radio. And he was saying something like, honor your grandparents, connect with them, spend time Mm -hmm. with them, your elders, because you don't know how long you're going to have them. And like a week later, my dad had a flight to El Salvador. Oh my God, for listening to the radio program? Yeah, wow. just the like, power I like of a, radio. Yeah. <laughs> and the power, I think it's like that, how a poet's mind works too, in a way, right? <laughs> like maybe my dad has that same, like where I, maybe I get that from, right? It was like this one thing that happened that really impacted him and he couldn't stop thinking about it. And he just was thinking about my mama Juana and that he hadn't seen her since he'd left in 78. Mm. So at that point, it's 1986, early 1986 so he hadn't seen her since he left in 1978 Mm -hmm. um and I think that weight was already there for him but then this radio moment ends up pushing him to want to go and so I think for him is just that she was the one who cared for him my grandmother his mom was always working or not Mm -hmm. around like uh, because she worked in the fincas Mm -hmm. uh, in El Salvador so she just you know they would go and they would sleep there so my grandma wasn't really around much and so my great-grandmother was the one who he had the most connection to Mm -hmm. and he really wanted us to meet her for her to like meet his children Mm -hmm. Um, and that was super super important to him so he saw the risk worth taking. Yeah Mm -hmm. I think it's just kind of impossible choices that Documented people are presented like either not having your children meet the person who raised you or face this really daunting journey through the desert. And I appreciated that you included that story because I've seen a lot of stories about people who were like, this border separated us, so we didn't go back and we haven't gone back. And it's kind of bad. <laughs> Like, well, I'm going back. <laughs> yeah, we actually, my dad went twice undocumented. Right. Um, yeah. He went two times. And part of it, too, is like for context, right? Mm-hmm. This is not something that we could compare to now with the, you know, border industrial complex, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. at that time, the level of surveillance or feet on the ground is so much smaller. Yeah. In 1994, there were only 4,000 Border Patrol agents. And this is happening in 1986, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're talking about way less surveillance. And yes, there's risk, but there was less risk because people could return through Tijuana Mm. versus the Sonoran Desert Mm. at that time. So there is less risk. It's still risky, but there's less risk in terms of the surveillance at the time and the danger that's being faced now with the Sonoran Desert that people have to cross. I mean, at that same, around that same time period, 
My grandma was detained when she was coming. Um, my cousin was detained at nine years old and deported back. And then they had to try again. So mm-hmm. there's still risk involved. Yeah, definitely. But it's the dangers now are quadrupled, right? Because yes. of the funneling of the journey through the Sonoran Desert. So it really did change it. The thing that to me is most mind-boggling is the middle of the war, that that was never a fear, something that would yes, not deter my I was dad gonna from ask going. about that too. Yeah, because that also, I think, is a disruption of the narratives around the war. And I think it's an important one. I, I thought about it a lot with my parents that grew up during the Civil War and left during that time period because... Like my mom would tell me that she had a secretary job and she would take the bus to get there. And she said one time that she was commuting the, I forget who she said it was, but armed group of people got on the bus and they were like, everybody get out. We're going to set the bus on fire. That can be so wild to think about if that hasn't been your day to day. But then it's like, that is also the truth of war and crisis. It's kind of about the resilience of humanity also. Yes, these earth-shattering things are happening. And then at the same time, like, people get up every day and live their lives. There's a sadness to that because it's like we have to work to survive under capitalism. But then there's also kind of a beauty to that, too, because of the resilience. You still live your life and you still love people and you still want to see them even during, you know, really intense periods like war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I often think about the normalcy of things that we create when yeah. our circumstances are incredibly abnormal, you know, and when we think of normalcy, right, what would be normal would be like your basic needs are met, mm-hmm. um, your your safety is being met. Those are sort of the things that I think we consider a level of normalcy, right? Your health mm-hmm. is okay, those kinds of things. But then... Yeah, your material needs are met. Yeah, yeah. And then when you go to a place or when you are from a place like El Salvador, where mm-hmm. um, we're from a very, very rural canton. Mm-hmm. It's a village of still to this day, there's the population is 300 people. Oh, wow. And it's, That's it, very small. It hasn't, yeah, it, it hasn't really been growing. And I feel like most of them are my relatives. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and, and it hasn't really been growing in particular, just because of the same trend worldwide but I think in general Mm -hmm. that people are having less children than Mm -hmm. they were having before but also the population is based on that migration and so many people have left our village that the number of the village doesn't really grow even though there are like more kids being born that it's not growing because so many people who are like of age where they would be able to make a choice whether they want to migrate and leave they they are leaving those yeah. that age group is leaving yeah so i mean but we're from such a rural place that the normalcy is not having your basic needs met mm-hmm. right the normalcy is not having running water every day you know not having potable water right water that you can drink that is safe to drink and being in a state of war right um when we think of the salvadorian civil war it's uh, 1980 to 1982 in the books but the up rising through the war is like happening for like 15 years before the war even starts and i feel like you can mark a lot of it with the assassination of roque dalton which happens like Mm. in the late 60s all of that is the booming towards the war that's gonna happen yeah 
So I think that there is a sort of normalcy that occurs that it's not normal at all. For no, right. Can't, yeah. Yeah. And so because of that, I think you learn, like what you're saying is that you learn to live with the state of war. And in the case of my father um, in particular, because my mom refused to go undocumented. Um, she had a super yeah. traumatic experience coming to the U.S. with a coyote yeah. who tried to sexually assault her. That she was like, I'm not doing this again. I'm right. not crossing undocumented. This is yeah. not happening. That's important to point um, out that it's a different journey for women and femmes, you know. Femmes. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. And uh yeah, so then he takes that risk because he's living in the wartime regardless. And he chose for himself that he wasn't going to let war deter him from something that he thought would be very beautiful, which was like my great grandmother getting to see his children. In one of your poems, you write that the desert is the place where immigrants lose all their humanity. Why is that? I just think of, I mean, there's so many layers to that for me. One is when you look at any sort of aerial shot of the Sonoran Desert, it's so huge Mm -hmm. that actually in those aerial shots, there's probably migrants crossing and you can't see them at all. I say that in particular because of the way that the border industrial complex treats migrants. They know that those are inhumane conditions to be crossing the border through the Sonoran Desert, in the heat, in the dangers that they face also with wildlife. And then there's, you know, organizations who go out and put water for people to browse there so they can find jugs of water. And there's plenty of records of CBP going and finding the water and pouring the water out. Um, like destroying the containers, right? Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm thinking about all of that weight. And I think also the way that migrants are viewed, this view of why are you coming here? You shouldn't be here. It doesn't matter the dangers that you're facing. We don't care about that because you shouldn't be here. So that's the inhumane part, um, that we're not concerned with more viable, safe options for migrants Mm -hmm. leaving their countries, even for temporary reasons, right? And even the way that just leaving to come work here would be impossible for most people. Yeah. When it wasn't always that way. Mm -hmm. It was not. I think with the, you know, the Sonoran Desert, I think is really important to talk about because it is so inhospitable to humans and it's kind of, it's impossible to survive. And, you know, it's documented that Border Patrol did this intentionally. They militarized Mm -hmm. the border Mm -hmm. to funnel people to this area that is the most dangerous, where you can die crossing. It Mm -hmm. is expansive and it's deterrence through death. Mm -hmm. They're trying to make it so that people Mm -hmm. will be unwilling to cross or that they will face death if they do. And I really appreciated you highlighting that in in your poems. I actually am teaching about Border Patrol right now. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, it's a unit that I teach in my class. And we just went over that phrasing of deterrence, right? Um, Yes. Sort of their their plan to deter people through that surveillance and technology. I teach a lot of work by uh, Todd Miller, who's one of the sort of more well-known writers writing about the border. Mm -hmm. He was living in upstate New York initially during his when he first started researching as a journalist on the topic but then now he's been living in Tucson for I don't know how long and but uh he really unpacks it in so many different layers and I think the larger picture is capitalism and imperialism right yes 
And that's the larger picture as to why people continue to come. So the fact that the border industrial complex put surveillance and is intentionally trying to funnel people through the Sonoran Desert. And the idea is that they will take this route because it's so risky when people don't have anything left to lose. If all they have left to lose is their life, they feel that that is more valuable than whatever else is weighing them down or motivating them to want to take this journey. And if those circumstances are never dealt with, then people will still come. Yeah, exactly. And just the thing is that people are actually undeterred. That's the thing that people mm-hmm. who are so insistent on the border wall and militarizing the border refuse to accept is that all of these things have not stopped people from coming. It's just made the journey inhumane. Yeah. And in the case of El Salvador, right now, the numbers are a little lower. Like the most of the people coming right now are for Nicaragua and Venezuela. But I don't think there are think, people yeah. will, will ever stop coming right. due to the U.S. imperialism in our own nation. Like we have the dollar. We're the only country in Central America <laughs> that converted to the U.S. dollar. Oh, like we also have Bitcoin inflation. now. So. Oh, yeah. And Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. We can't forget that. Right. Like the rate of inflation versus what people yeah. make a day is yeah. so exorbitant. I just don't see, you know, and I always call this like the post-post-war syndrome, right? This is yeah. the post-post-war syndrome that we're living in as a result of that war and the relationship that was established between the U.S. government and the Salvadorian government. The cycle continues. Yeah, well, when you said post-post-war, I, I thought you meant like, Because, yes, there was the Civil War, but then there's the U.S. exporting its policing model to El Salvador Mm -hmm. and its prison Mm -hmm. model, too. Like with the we had tough on crime, but then in El Salvador, they had mano dura policies, which was Mm -hmm. the same thing, doing a lot of the same racial profiling and criminalizing and kind of growing prisons in the same way that has been happening here. And then I thought also of another kind of war could be interpreted as the way that the U.S. neglected Salvadoran undocumented people, you know, had them live their whole lives in the U.S. and then deported them to El Salvador mm-hmm. and kind of fed into the growth of gangs. So it's like post-post-war, it just feels like there have been many, I don't know if war is the right word to say, but there's been many eras of violence, state mm-hmm. and always state-backed at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the state sanctioned violence right yeah and i think even when you think about the population of salvadorians who become the diaspora who becomes the mara in el salvador that diaspora is predominantly as well born in el salvador left during the era of the war arrived in Los Angeles during an era of gangs, of high mm-hmm. gang violence, mm-hmm. and then is then deported back to an unstable place. And the one thing that they've learned is gang violence. Yes, because Mana Sarvatutra was born in L.A. prisons. Yeah, and it, it it's also rooted in Huntington Park. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like one of the first places, which makes sense because Huntington Park is predominantly Mexican. That Salvadorians mm-hmm. would then form gangs that were right. specifically Salvadorian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really important history and context. Thank you for sharing that. So the book is called Cenizas, and 
you say that, you know, part of that is because this is like you collecting the cenizas of your memory. What prompted you to take those cenizas and to make something permanent, which is this book? Trauma really is mm. the, the easiest answer. I had been writing before I started writing this book, but I would say that that's like pre who I am now. And I was writing more as like a activity versus something I was invested in and more like a hobby. Right. Yeah. Um, even though I have a bachelor's degree in creative writing, I still feel like I approach writing as a hobby mm-hmm. and also as a way to avoid studying um, pre-1940 literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> I was, yeah, that's real. If I was doing creative oh, writing. That's like every English department is that. Yeah, I didn't have to do an emphasis in romantic literature or yeah. baroque, you know, literature. Yeah, you don't have to memorize Victorian Chaucer. Literature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, and so it was also a route to like survive being a lit major. But after I graduated, I moved across the country to live with my tia in Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, I was just sort of not knowing what to do with my bachelor's degree. And even though my tia was there, I didn't realize that the tri-state area is the largest population of Salvadorians in the country. Yeah, it is. It is. (laughs) But shortly after I arrived there, her husband, who was an alcoholic, died in the house with us. And... I was back when MySpace had a blog (laughs) and I just, I didn't, I was like trying to process what I was feeling. I wasn't particularly close to him at all, but the alcoholism portion was the triggering portion, right? As long with someone dying due to it. And I had a mentor that I've always had since I was 12 and almost getting kicked out of junior high. And she saw my MySpace blog and was like, you should really try writing about your family because Mm. she had seen my writing Mm -hmm. and knew that I never wrote about my family. I was very guarded Mm -hmm. (laughs) in that way. It's hard to write about your family. Especially when you're not ready yet. And I was only, I was, I was about 24 at the time of Gustavo's death. And what happened is I started writing a poem, trying to process what had happened and alcoholism. And I realized halfway through that poem or after a first draft of it, that I was not actually writing about him and that I was actually Mm. writing about my grandfather Mm. because he is the largest alcoholic male figure in my life. And he's 90 years old right now. He's still in the canton in El Salvador. And so his long life, you know, in my mom's entire life of his alcoholism, experiencing all of that, is sort of what began the journey. And then in writing about my grandfather, I couldn't avoid writing about my grandmother, who actually died when I was 12. And so for her the matriarch of the house to die when I was so young and for my alcoholic grandfather to still be alive was always just like, what is this thing that the universe is doing? Right. Like how come she's gone and he's here and doesn't seem to value his life or us or anything. And so that sort of prompted the journey. So I started with the two of them. These are my mother's parents. I started with the two of them and then it just expanded into further exploring who I was amongst all of this. Yeah. And then in 2010, I went to, I was in grad school by then. I had decided to go to grad school due to starting to write this book. And I went to El Salvador and I stayed there for like two and a half months researching and writing and spending time with my family and in the capital doing research. So I was sort of back and forth between the two places. 
I guess that's when it emerged into something more than just not only telling the story of my family and our different traumas and losses that are a result of imperialism, capitalism, war, generational trauma, but also telling the story of how all of that is connected to El Salvador. Right. Yeah. I think it's really critical to be preserving our histories in the way that you're doing because such few official records or documentation of Salvadoran history exists. You know, there's been a lot of destroying of records. And when white people or, you know, white women come in and write about us or take pictures of us, it's objectifying. And that was, you know, I noticed that some of your poems reference Donna de Cesare. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then there's Joan Didion who wrote Salvador. Uh-huh. And then both, I think just, you know, like trauma porn is just focusing on the sheer brutality of the war and then kind of using that to define the whole country and its people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, why did you respond to that women's photographs? The context for those photographs is pretty important. And I try and I intentionally make sure to identify her as a white woman photographing these people in the poems. Because there's, I think, three that I did on three different photographs by her. So when I was there in El Salvador in 2010, in Santa Tecla, there was an old jail where they held prisoners of war, but also just it was a small jail. It had been turned into a museum at the time, and it was called Museo Tecleño. Now it's like some hip environmental art charter thing. (laughs) But it was Museo Tecleño in 2010. And when I went there, they were having like a lot of different events like around El Salvador. They had an exhibit that was specifically about the war. And so Donna de Cesare's photographs were in that exhibit in the museum. They had an exhibit where Dona de Cesare's photographs were in one room entirely. It was just her photographs. And then there were other rooms with photographs by all kinds of different people. And I think a lot of them were like those sort of very raw photographs you see of the war from El Salvador. They're very graphic, honestly. They're very graphic. And I have an appreciation for that simply because despite how ugly our war was Mm -hmm. and our history has been, at the least, we're not entirely at this point. We haven't been a nation that hides it, that it's relatively accessible to see these images. Mm. Um, I think in the way that most U.S. US wars are fought now. Yeah. 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 Um, Like the last time any footage, real war footage was seen was the Vietnam Mm. War in this Mm -hmm. country. And Mm -hmm. since then, there have been so many wars. Yeah. Um, And now wars happen via drones. So there's like mm -hmm. there's a detachment and even less accountability to the U.S. people that are initiating these wars. Exactly. I was really impacted by the photographs. And one of the connections I had to her photographs were that it was almost all the photographs from her that ended up in her book are from 1980 to like the early 80s through the end of the war. But they're in El Salvador and in Los Angeles and in Houston. 
because she was actually doing her degree in Houston. And so to me, I had that connection of showing Salvadorians and the way they were living, like in the MacArthur Park, Westlake area, as well as the Salvadorian War and sort of the parallels in these two spaces as a result of war. But I think for me, it was really important to respond to these poems and bring those people and what they were feeling alive versus this frozen still frame of a moment from the photograph. And the poem Reflejo has gone through so many revisions, but just recently had the biggest revision, I think like a year before the final edits were done. And I now have like a whole section that's in Spanish. That's just a letter to Abelito, who is Mm. the boy in the photograph. And for me, that's so important. Yeah. Because it's just a photograph and we don't know whether he's alive or not. Mm -hmm. And I think looking at, and even if it is a photograph taken by a white woman, I Mm -hmm. think that's what's so important is that we don't know. Um, what has happened to him, right? right. We, we don't know whether he is alive today. And we only have like these fragments of his life at that moment. I think trying to think about myself and my positionality was really important as being here at the same time that photograph is being taken right. and being in Los like Angeles as a citizen. at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm, as a citizen and in safety, When I was revising the poem, I went on Google Maps and I looked at how far his village was from ours. And it was only 45 kilometers away. Wow. And to know that as I was able to journey back and forth, he was there. Yeah. Yeah. I I really appreciate you giving life to Benito and writing to him in Spanish because, yes, these photographs are documentations of this time period and it allows us to grapple with it but it's it is a little objectifying is because it with missing that context we don't know what happened it was like callousness of the news cycle like it's mm-hmm. just this was something worth photographing in that terrible moment and not worth following up on and mm-hmm. I appreciate mm-hmm. that you did that you you did follow up that particular poem is I mean photograph and poem is doing two different things because when you look at the photograph I picked that one too because I could tell he was intentionally posed for it really yeah because he's holding because he's looking really sad right (laughs) he's like hugging the pole right he just kind of I can see how he'd be posed yeah he kind of just has like like sad eye look you know yes yeah no he did Um, yeah now as soon as you said that I was like huh well, he what probably was posed because what, what kid just stands strange. like that? Yeah. yeah. Like, what I think is strange is that he has a fractured bomb in his hand in that mm. photo. That's, yeah. So like it, in the angle that the photo was taken, the front forward facing image is sort of the bomb. And it mm-hmm. almost looks like as big as him, right? Because mm-hmm. of the angle of the photo. And so I just feel like, why would he be doing that? It's not right. an organic photo. Yeah. And that that's, in particular why I picked that one to sort of really delve into and do more with because that is not an organic photo it does not seem organic it seems like she was maybe walking with him or something and Mm -hmm. like engaging him in a way to capture a moment in a photo right yeah Mm -hmm. in 
diaspora. Right, that your father knew he carried a home in the grooves of his skin, that it takes a certain kind of spirit heavy with leaving to see that he was not whole. What does it mean to have a spirit heavy with leaving? Um, For me, I think about in particular in my lineage, obviously I don't know at this point, I have not yet like fully done all the research of where the largest colonization is of our family. I think it's about three generations up, four generations up um, would be like clear. But my mm-hmm. entire family is from this village. Both of my parents are. And that poem ends uh, talking about El Panteón de San Rafael. Uh, the cemetery in San Rafael, and all of my ancestors are buried there, except for one who passed away here in the U.S. and was buried in Houston. Aside from that, every single person in my family has been buried there for three generations. Wow. I think actually four generations because my great greats are in there. (laughs) So for me, I think that is the spirit of Mm. like when your spirit knows you are from Mm -hmm. a place when you are so deeply rooted to a place where you know that everything that has contributed to who you are is from one, not just country, Mm -hmm. right? But one very specific region and place. And so that's what I was trying to convey with that. Everything in your body knows that is home Mm -hmm. to you. Everything in your spirit knows this is home to you. For us, it's so particular because of the fact that my parents ended up together and grew up in the same village that all of my great-grandparents and grandparents are from the same place. Really changes my particular connection. I'm so deeply rooted yeah. in a way that so many other people are That's not. That's kind of funny because right? I was going to transition to something that might be a different perspective, but you write that Salvadoran migrants are like the in-between. I wanted to ask why that is. You're just talking about rootedness. Because <laughs> I, I think what you're talking, the in-between is something that's larger yeah. than just your family. So can you get into that? I mean, I feel like this is my favorite thing to contextualize because recently I just did an event for Utah Book Fest. So I was out in Salt Lake City, Utah. And when I talked about the in-between, someone after said, I really appreciated you saying that because... Oh, wow. It gives me a place to now put my dead in this more hopeful way. As a diaspora person, I sort of started thinking about this notion of the in-between based on the fact that Mm. everyone in my family is buried in the same place, yet I live here. And that for the majority of my life, that has meant I have not been able to Mm. attend any of the funerals I have really wanted to be at due to income, uh, due to my parents not having the money to take us, due to uh, whatever is going Mm -hmm. on in like work or school or something in being rooted here. And so when I was little and my grandma died when I was 12, we actually, we were going every other year to El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And when my grandma died, we didn't go back for six years. Mm -hmm. And it sort of solidified this space of the in-between for me. I didn't get to go to the funeral. There's a poem called, uh, There's Not Enough Money for Your Grief, about just my mother going. 
for me, it's mm-hmm. a place mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the El Salvador that I imagine, right, where everyone is still there. And it was easy for me to do that as a kid with my grandma because there was nothing to prove otherwise. I was not in El Salvador. There were so many mm-hmm. days where I felt like she was just yeah. there and still alive, except she'd been gone for a while. And I could do that because I had not gone back right. to El Salvador to witness that she was no longer there. And I didn't go back until mm. my second or third year in college. I actually did go once, actually, one time in high school. But then after that, I didn't go again until I was in college. So once she wasn't there, it was my other grandmother was here in the U.S. And so we just didn't go back. My parents did sometimes, but not me. And so for me, I just feel that way now. There's this mm-hmm. like beauty to thinking about all of my ancestors being there. And I think how I view spirituality and You know, I know that they are always with me regardless of where I am in the world. But Mm. there is a power and a strength that I feel when I am there. Whenever I go to El Salvador, we go to the cemetery and we clean everyone's graves. And so we go and we just sweep up and we water, we leave plants. You know, we bring a trash bag and we clean up and it always ends up my mom Mm -hmm. telling us about our elder ancestors that we never met, that she met. And she'll just be like, oh, this is your great uncle, blah, blah, blah. And this and she'll start telling us. But there is this power. um, The last time we were there, which is Mm -hmm. sort of like where the quote comes from for the end of the diaspora poem. Yeah. Where my mom says. If I die here, leave me here. <laughs> um, very Salvadoran. And she said that when we were at the like, okay, um, <laughs> get it. Death is imminent. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But we're like sitting next to my grandmother's grave, hanging out and talking about her. And then behind me, I heard crackling right. and like a giant tree branch broke and fell right behind me. Not like where I was in any danger, but I feel like in those moments, confirmation Mm -hmm. of how present she is or how much they are listening and appreciate us being there and thinking about them. And I feel like the in-between is sort of the way we think about um, parallel universes, right? Yeah, parallel universes, like the future that never was, you know? That makes me think of one of the most beautiful poems I feel like I've ever heard is Janelle Pineda. Uh, she's also a Salvadorian poet and she has a chapbook. Mm. It's actually right here, so I don't get the name wrong. She has a chapbook called Lineage of Rain. There's a poem in here titled... Yes, In Another uh, Life. Oh, In yes. Another Life. And it's imagining... Yes, or that there were in no another life, Imagining that the war never happened. Like, what would that be? I remember the first time I heard her read it, I was just like, wow, it's true. You know, one of the criticisms that I got when I was working on Sinisa's that I was like really upset about <laughs> was someone was saying that I should push the book to be more about imperialism, more about the U.S.'s relationship with El Salvador government and sort of like the dynamics. <laughs> more about the war. It's all about the war. More <laughs> about the war. And I that's the thing that to me was so upsetting is it's part of the process mm-hmm. at University of Arizona Press. So I wrote a response mm-hmm. to the feedback because they do a peer review process there. And I said, 
there is no aspect of our lives that is separate from this war. Period. Period, right? There's no aspect of our lives because that's why that argument that Janelle's poem is making is so important. That in an if if this was another life, okay, but it's not, right? In this world, in this existence that I live in, there is no aspect of my life that has not been impacted by the war or the culture of who we are. Many of your poems are titled Call Me Refugee. Why was it important for you to claim that as an identifier? So these are all the poems specifically that are about, I would say, migration and the war. Yeah. That's why I was like, what? More about <laughs> the U.S. relationship to us. I thought that's literally what it's about. It's like, yeah, I feel like you need to reread the book. <laughs> I feel like this person, I don't know what they were looking for. Um, I guess like maybe... What they wanted, like the statutes, or like, yeah, what did they I, want? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Maybe more yeah. like I'm thinking about the political poems that like people redo. So, the Call Me Refugee poems, I had two initially. I had all those poems, but I only had two titled Call Me Refugee. And in okay. restructuring the book and thinking about the order and how was I going to organize the book. I took like a hiatus from the world and I went to my parents' house in Las Vegas in the wintertime and just hiked every day and worked on the book every day. And that's mm. all I did. <laughs> that, that was like my entire schedule for well, until I started the semester again. And this mm. is uh, two years ago. It's also pandemic times, I think. Was it pandemic times? I think mm. so. So I'm, yeah, two years yeah, ago. I'm also doing this when like no one is out really. So... I separated all my poems into themes, right? Like, oh, these are all the war ones. These are all... And then I color-coded them in index cards. And then, so there's this group of all these poems that are specifically about the war, that are specifically about migration. And I have the two that were already titled Called Me Refugee 1 and Called Me Refugee 2. And then I thought to myself, well, why aren't all of these titled that? Because... They're all making the same argument in this book that mm -hmm. we should be considered refugees in a, right. in a country that funneled so much money and training into our war because they were so mm -hmm. invested in their anti-communist propaganda and just the general U.S. imperialist meddling that occurs, right? <laughs> um, and so I decided to make them all call me refugee. And then I ended up sort of just like shifting the order of all of them so that it did work more from like one to, I think it's seven or eight that they are now, because I felt like it was an important argument for the book to make. Mm -hmm. And in general, not just for us, but all diaspora people living outside of their homeland due to U.S. warfare, due to yeah. U.S. imperialism in their warfare, right? Like U.S. involvement mm -hmm. in their wars. And the fact that all of us continue to live in either those of us, those people who are living undocumented or, or those who are living here in constant mixed status. And I think mm -hmm. I forget sometimes how mixed status my life is. And it is mm -hmm. very mixed status. Both my parents are documented and my sisters are, but my partner is not, my uncles are not, my cousins mm -hmm. are not. 
I have, you know, such an expansive mixed status family and my family is still currently coming here. The most recent one earlier this year. Mm. For me, it's so important to call into question why Salvadorian people are not able to get legal status here, even if it is just Mm. a worker's permit or if it's, you know, Mm. something that would allow them to be here without like a constant threat of deportation, even though, you know, I still think that it should be like an easier path to green card visa, right? Visa, green card, and then permanent residency through citizenship if they so choose. And and just the fact that that path doesn't exist for us, considering all that the U.S. did to make this war happen. Um, And I think everyone always talks about, it's also an issue for me because of the amnesty, because at the time that the amnesty happens, the Reagan amnesty, right? It's in 1988. The war isn't even over. And if Mm -hmm. you weren't here before 1988, then you can't get amnesty. You didn't get the amnesty. And that doesn't even make any sense, right? The war is still <laughs> going on. And then it doesn't end in the books until 1992. And so, so many people who come, who came between 1988 and 1982 are still currently living here, fully undocumented, unable to return and have never been back in 30 years. Yeah. I, so when you, when I was asking about the in-between, I thought that that was what you were getting at because Salvadorans do have this kind of liminal legality. The thing is that so many Salvadorans qualify for asylum, Mm -hmm. especially political asylum, which is like the quintessential kind, but it's been systematically denied. And it's because of the U.S.'s involvement in the war. Like the whole idea of asylum is that your government can't take care of you, so we can take care of you, and that's why you're coming to us. But that narrative doesn't work if the reason that the government can't take care of you is because of U.S. involvement. So that's why, like, who gets political asylum is ultimately related to geopolitics in that way. Mm -hmm. Like, right now we're accepting Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans because their governments literally refuse to accept deportees. That's why they are now on a pathway to asylum and the U.S. is allowing people in. But... There's just as many Salvadorans who are fleeing because they can't survive in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it is Mm state-caused. And that is what asylum is meant to protect against. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the systematic denial is, like, living in that in-between is something that is very particular to people from certain countries and not others. Yeah, I I do use the in-between a little bit that way because I think there is that, there's a lot of levels of in-between. And and the epigraph to the book is sort of that same notion. It says an immigrant is a person between nations, an elevator between floors. Yes, yes. And I think that still sort of sits in like my world of the in-between of just in the same way that... I can't be in both places at once. It's that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my ancestors also exist in a place in between. That's that Guillermo Gomez Peña quote. And it's from this activist uh, performance. I don't don't know if you're aware of it, but he did like this performance piece in the 80s where he had himself wrapped in a rug and duct taped. And then they put a sign on him that said immigrant. 
Uh, oh my God. Wow. And he had his team place him in the elevator in Persian Square that goes between oh. the parking garage and the top of Persian Square. And it was supposed to be like for 24 hours, but he didn't even make it 24 hours because of the mistreatment that he received, even though people knew there was like a human body wrapped in the rug. And they had to end the performance piece early when two men picked him up and threw him in a dumpster before the 24 hours were even up. Wow. Wow. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm just sitting with that. That reminds me of, oh my gosh, I forget this person's name, but there was a performance artist who was Iraqi and he was trying to, he was like making a statement about, I forget what the performance was called, but it was like he agreed to be in a room where people could virtually control this paintball gun. And so they could control like whether the paintball gun was directed at him. And it became this whole world into itself. People hacked it to like constantly fire at him. People hacked it to disarm it. And the artist underwent a lot of abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a little troubling that, you know, in the 80s and more recently, that piece that I'm talking about, you draw the same conclusion of like, how quickly people turn to cruelty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that piece is super powerful. It stuck with me forever. And then I yeah. wanted to uh, use that line um, because I just thought that, because he he himself described an immigrant in the description for his performance piece. He described mm-hmm. an immigrant being like a person, um, an elevator stuck between floors. And that line, mm-hmm. even though I read it in like 2010, I never left my brain because it was to me yeah. very powerful about this unable to arrive, right? Um, right. And, and, yes. and what we want to arrive at. And Javier Zamora just came out with his memoirs. Oh, yeah. So yeah with... I'm trying to get him on the podcast. So you should yeah. reply to my email, my guy. <laughs> I'll DM him, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I was watching, a sh- I shared with my class a little four-minute interview. And I think in the same way that Guillermo Gomez-Pena like, no, talks about the elevator between floors and not arriving, it makes me think of something Javier said in an interview he did just this past week where... He said, and when you arrive here and what you imagined was the American dream Mm. does not match. You constantly are asking yourself, was this worth it? Right. And I think that that's so underpinning for all of us. And even for me, right, who is immensely privileged in comparison to someone who is not documented and immensely privileged also in the, just the way that I grew up here. You know, my parents are still together. I have a two parent household. I've had constant support. I've gone through, you know, all my higher education and being able to like make it out of there and then land a tenure track. So I'm in this position where I think so many people would be like, well, your parents coming here must be worth it. Yeah, you're kind of the quintessential American dream. Like, you've done what they said you should do. <laughs> you're literally a professor of English. <laughs> right? And then, and I feel like that's the same 
it is like, well, what's it worth, right? Mm-hmm. What what are we mm-hmm. trying to give value to? Are we trying to give value yeah. to the level of trauma that has happened in our right. families, right? right? Or in our lives or the constant dysphoria of like, am I from here? Am I not from here? Where do I belong? Yeah. And where do I fit? Right. And so it's like, what is it that we want to value in those moments? Um, yes, of course, like I recognize my privilege and my positionality. At the same time, that does not make it so that I enter spaces and I feel welcome everywhere I go, especially right. in academia. Yeah, I'm sure in the English department. <laughs> yeah, well, I really appreciate that you're doing that. You're super inspiring. Like I think about academia sometimes and... It's super inspiring that you're that you're there. Yeah. I'm trying. It's hard though. It is a lot of labor. Yeah. When you're invested in levels of change. Right. If, if that's mm-hmm. what you're doing, if you're there to make change, it's a lot of labor. And right now I'm like on three very intense committees on campus. Mm. And I, you know, I'm like, why did I just join this other one again? <laughs> right? Like, right. Because one helps. Well, it's not all extra labor yeah. unpaid mm-hmm. for you as mm-hmm. a professor. Yeah. Even though it is expected, it's unpaid. Yeah, yeah. It's expected. It's unpaid extra labor. And then it's also emotional labor that's taxing yeah. as a woman of color from migrant parents. And that the way that I look at the world and the way that I've experienced the world is really different. And that affects how I interact in these spaces or how I'm triggered in these spaces. So I told you that the last question I asked is what has been inspiring you lately? Said it would be a hard question to answer, but now that we've talked, maybe something (laughs) has inspired you. Maybe I'm really inspired and excited by Javier's success right now with Solito. It's really Mm -hmm. inspiring to see how well his memoir is doing. So Mm -hmm. far, the way that it's flying off the shelves, which is the most important part. I hope that all these people who are buying it are reading it, right? (laughs) Yes, same. Yeah. Because it is a really important story to tell, in particular for something that you mentioned earlier, is how many of these stories have been written by people who did not themselves migrate. Yes. And that is so important. It's like, I couldn't write the migration like right. I'm, my, my mom wants me to like ghostwrite her migration story, right? but like, but like I could not really do that for my mother. Maybe that's a little different, but like to do yeah. that for someone else to me. And I think a lot of books have gotten nor notoriety are where yeah. they're writing on someone else's journey yeah. or yeah. It, it's that white lens. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's so yeah. powerful about Javier's success is that it is, his story and only he can tell it and he is telling it regardless of as he has stated in many interviews already this book would not be possible without his therapist he (laughs) that he finally connected with and was able to work with to get to a point where he could write this book so that to me is really Mm -hmm. inspiring and that's been inspiring me and then the other day when he did his event in Venice Beach, it was a conversation with Christopher Soto. Janelle Pinella was in the room. Javier was there. Oh, wow. I was there. Oh, my God. And, and Soto, Javier, Zamora, and I all have 2022 books. So the three of yeah. us all. I know. It's kind of a year. moment yeah. in Salvadoran <laughs> literature. 
there's a lot of really big Salvadoran texts that have come out. Yeah. Like Ceniza, Solito, Delinquedas is coming out. There's more. That yeah. I, but it, it's, it's right like that's inspiring, right? Like the success, but also yes. all of the writers that are like putting books out right now and just that we're out there. And Soto said something really, I, I feel like I always say this to people, but uh, they said it the other night. Soto said, there's so many poets and writers among our people. And when I yes. go to El Salvador, Every other person I meet is a writer. Every other person I meet mm. is an artist. And there is a link there in terms of the way that we process trauma, the way that we are yeah. taking care of our own mental health through art. And that yeah. is something that yeah. our people do and have been doing yeah. for decades and centuries. Amazing note to end on. See, you burned sure and you nailed it. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for coming onto the podcast. This was a delight. 